we're looking at this series, um, The Gospel-Centered Life, and we're talking about how the gospel impacts and transforms us. And uh, this is week four of our series, um, how the gospel transforms our relationships, our our emotions, our self-perception, our friendships, our marriage, our life goals, all of these things. Uh, so let me just, let's go look at the chart here for the sake of review. What we've talked about is uh, at some point in our life, God brings us to a place of, of faith. Uh, it's called regeneration or the new birth, John 3. Jesus talks about you must be born again. And, and yet that, he's been working toward that end to those he calls from the beginning of, actually before the world was created. And I think Jerry used a pointer and took us all the way back somewhere over on that wall. Uh, in the last week to explain how God has been working and moving and, and actually lavished his affection on us before we were even born, which is a, a fascinating and humbling and amazing thing. It's a comforting thing. And then over time, once you become a follower of Christ, you become more aware of God's holiness um, and also uh, correspondingly more aware of our own flesh, our own sinfulness. And uh, Think about how this works. Think about the example of the Apostle Paul, right? The greatest missionary ever. At the beginning of his ministry, he said, Paul, an apostle, right? This is how he writes. And then a little bit later on, he says, Paul, I think this is 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the least of the apostles. And a little bit later on, he says, Paul, the least of all the saints. And then toward the end of his ministry, he says, Paul, the chief of sinners, right? You see that digression. Um, and that's because, it's not because he actually became a worse person. It's not because he, he, he just started doing more and more sinful stuff. It's because he realized more and more uh, his own brokenness, sinfulness, compared to, in relation to, uh, this holy and perfect and, and awesome God. And so, um, and what you see in, in that and the person who is growing in, in, in that way as the cross becomes magnified. And uh, as a matter of fact, in all those, those passages that I just, those statements by the Apostle Paul, they're all made in the context of the cross. And so the cross is always either immediately before or after these statements where Paul, you know, says this about himself. So tonight uh, is chapter four. Uh, I don't imagine anybody, is anybody following along in the book? I know a couple of you are teaching, so you are, but um, the uh, chapter four of the book is called Law and Gospel. And and I have to be honest with you or candid with you. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take, this is actually tonight. So I've got about 32 minutes. I'm taking four 40-minute lectures and cramming them into one 32-minute lecture. So it's going to be a lot of stuff. And I'm probably going to spark some additional, I'm sure I'm going to spark some questions. And that's okay. Um, I would love to we'll follow up in some other time, in some other way. But so Pastor Adam talked about all the, way, the ways that we minimize the gospel, performing and pretending. Um, and today I want to talk about how we confuse the gospel. So uh, there's one way that we confuse the gospel. It happens all the time in our lives, in our churches, in our families. We're going to talk about the remedy for this. But that is we, when we fail to distinguish between law and gospel. This is so very, very important. In fact, uh, throughout history, uh, people, uh, Presbyterians, Baptists, Lutherans, have all emphasized the, the dangers that occur when law and gospel is not properly distinguished. Let me give you a couple of examples. January 1532, Martin Luther said this, Therefore I say it again, 
properly separating the law and the gospel from one another is a very high art. We have to distinguish one from the other. Unless we want everything to be completely and totally mixed up, let doctrine then not be falsified, either by mingling these two into one or by mistaking the one for the other. So that was the middle of the 16th century, roughly. Martin Luther said, look, it's, it's, and he would say, and this was actually one of his sermons, but he'd say in his commentary on Galatians, it is the, the most important thing that a preacher, a pastor can do is dist- rightly distinguish law and gospel. Um, about 200 years, 300 years after that, there was a guy who wrote volumes on this by the name of C.F.W. Walther. Now, Walther, he wasn't much to look at. Let me show you a picture of him. You're going to know this guy wasn't beloved because of his looks. So, he, you know, he's not a guy that's going to appear in, uh, in any, any magazines for his looks, but he was a guy who was followed, uh, talked about the, the law gospel distinction brilliantly. Here's what he said. One should avoid going to a restaurant where the chef cannot tell the difference between cyanide and salt, important distinction, where God's law is not rightly distinguished from his gospel. The spiritual lives of people are endangered, driven either to futility and despair or to Christ denying self-confidence and arrogance. The end result is the same, unbelief that condemns. So one final quote about... I guess it would have been maybe only about a half century later. This is B.B. Uh, Warfield says this. The confusion between law and gospel makes the gospel itself a doctrine of works. Men ought to be warned uh, not to mix the gospel with the law or the law with the gospel, but to preach the law in its full strictness and the gospel in its full sweetness and not to reverse their places. So it's okay if at this moment you're thinking, hey, what in the world are we talking about? Uh, we talk about distinguishing between law and the gospel, and how does that help? How does that help me, okay? How does that help a mother, a teacher, a nurse, an engineer, uh, a, a construction worker, whatever? How does that help us, this proper distinction? Well, when we talk about law, gospel, first let's, let me just, well, let me say this first of all. When there are a lot of ways that we try to understand the Bible in its entirety, right? So, the Bible is, we have 66 books written by you know, anywhere from 38 to 40 authors, depending on your perspective. And you have all of these books of the Bible, and you have you know, the books of the Bible are, are in, most of them are very different uh, types of literature or genres. Uh, for example, let me give you some of the genres that we have that are in the Bible, types of literature. You have historical narrative, um, you know, history, real history that took place, poetry, proverbs, letters, gospels, uh, you have the law as a category of writing, you have the songs, prophecy, you have sermons, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, we know it as a book, but it's actually a sermon, the apocalyptic literature, and all of these genres of scripture have to be interpreted differently uh, in order for us to make sense of them. So we don't, we don't look at the historical narratives and try to understand them in the same way that we do the songs or the psalms or the wisdom literature. Consider this. If we don't know how to interpret it, how difficult it is to make sense of some of the language and, and imagery and so on. Proverbs, I think it's, and I didn't write this down, but I'm pretty sure it's either Proverbs chapter 24 or 26. Uh, you have one verse that says, answer a fool. So there's an, there's an imperative here. Answer a fool, Right. And I think it's lest he be wise in his own eyes. And like two or three verses later, it says, do not answer a fool, right? 
lest you know, lest you be like him or something. And so, uh, the, the, do we answer a fool or do we not answer a fool? And the answer is, it takes wisdom, right? You have to understand. And these different genres have to be in, interpreted differently. And even though they have, they're written by different human authors. Um, there's one divine author, uh, obviously, you know, God Himself, who actually, through these various genres, tells one single story, one story of redemption which features Jesus Christ as the locus, the subject, and the object. So the the Bible is really one story, one narrative, one one meta-narrative, overarching narrative, which is the story of how God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. And in order to understand each little part, you have to look at it in light of the whole story. So if you were to pull up, you know, some of the, if you look at some of the literary works of the 20th century, and you see some of them have really long chapters. Some have shorter chapters. Some some of the books that maybe your kids are reading in high school, they may have 35 or 40 chapters. If you were to pick out, pick out one chapter of a, of a, even if it's a literary masterpiece, you pick out chapter 31 um, and you try to, and you, you try to make, you can't make sense of the whole story by just reading one chapter. You have to understand the whole arc of the narrative and how the whole thing works together. Well, in order to do that, in order to make sense of the whole Bible, there are some themes that people have, have, have employed to try to do that. So one of them is promise fulfillment. This is one that has been, you know, people look at this. This is how we interpret the scripture, promise fulfillment. Um, some of it is another uh, approach that people use is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You probably heard this. This is um, really made, not made famous. That's not the way, what I want to say, but it, it was utilized and written about most by reformers and Dutch reformers, Bob Inc. and so on, looking at the, the whole arc of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you're into alliteration, you know, the, 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 another way that it's described is, is creation, uh, curse, Christ, and consummation. This is how it all works together. Well, among those themes of looking at the Bible, uh, one is this one, law gospel. This is another way that we try to make sense of the whole story of the Bible. And so uh, throughout the, the, the Bible, God has spoken, as it were, in two words, law and gospel. Now, the Bible talks about law in different ways, There are some 600 references to the law in the Bible, more depending on, you know, more than that, give or take a few, the the Hebrew word Torah, the the Greek word for the New Testament, namas. And so the law is, the law is talked about in a variety of ways. One is the Mosaic law, which of course is the the first five books written by uh, Moses. A second uh, way that the law is discussed is, is God's just revealed will. Psalm 48, I delight to do your will. Uh, your law is within my heart. A third way would be kind of all of the Old Testament, sometimes is referred to as the law. And finally, a law is referred to just as a general command. But all of these things have one thing in common. They all, come, they all tell us what to do. They all come with expectation. So here's the, here's the most simple way to remember the difference. Law is anything in the Bible that says do. Okay. Gospel is anything in the Bible that says done. Law equals imperative. Gospel equals indicative. So 
just give me some uh, shout out some of the uh, some of the imperatives, the commands in the Bible, old or new. Yes, Daniel. Don't eat shellfish. Yeah, that that's from the Old Testament, right? Yeah, don't eat shellfish because I had shrimp the other day. Uh, it was pretty good, but I hope I wasn't violating a command. But so don't eat shellfish. That's what I mean. What what else? Love your neighbor, right? What what else? Yeah, do not kill. Thank you, Chris. A whole bunch of them. There are hundreds of them. So, uh, any other thoughts on any order? Any other laws? I'm in, just trying to make this point here that, that the law is, the law says do, 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 do. Right? You must do. There's an expectation to do. Um, so, anything in the Bible that says you know that you must do is law. And when we can, we confuse law and gospel. When we misunderstand what each was given to do, what the law was given to do, the gospel was intended to do. So now let me say this. The law in the Bible, in the Bible, the law, the commands, they're good. The law is right. It's pure. It's holy. It's beautiful. But it's unbending. It's unrelenting. It doesn't grade on a curve. Paul says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to keep all the laws. All the laws. So what is the purpose of the law? I'm going to give you three purposes, then I'm going to explain how this actually helps to transform our families, ourselves, our children, our church. So the first thing the law does is the law shows us what to do, but it does not enable us to comply with its commands. So love your neighbor as yourself. That tells us what we're supposed to do, right? But that doesn't make me any more able to love my neighbor, just because I know I'm supposed to. Um, forgive your enemies. That tells me what I'm supposed to do, doesn't it? I'm supposed to forgive my enemies. But just being told to doesn't make me, doesn't give me any more ability to actually forgive my neighbor. Um, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That tells me what I'm supposed to do. But it doesn't help me, it doesn't enable me to love God. Has anyone ever been able to love someone because they've been commanded to love that? But it doesn't work that way, does it? I think I've told you the story. Forgive me if I did, but I'm, I met with this young lady one time at Starbucks, and she was uh, really distraught and it, it said, hey, I, my, uh, my fiancé uh, broke up with me. And I was listening, okay, and tried to try to listen and empathize and so on. She said, my fiance broke up with me. I said, okay. I said, so I'm still kind of listening for the rest. He told me that he was going to marry me. I said, okay. And I'm still listening. And I listened for all what I, then what I understood as she continues, she wanted me to tell her fiance, no, you need to marry this girl because you told him, you know, you told her that you would. And so what she was really telling me is I want you to tell him to love me and to marry me. So it doesn't really work that way. Like just because I give him a pastoral command to love you, no one has ever loved just because they've been commanded to. So one of the things the law does is it tells us, it shows us what to do, but it does not enable us to comply with its commands. What else does the law do? The law exposes our sin, but it does not offer a solution to our sinfulness. Love God with all your, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that we haven't done that. I, I haven't done that. I haven't loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
I haven't treasured him the way I've been commanded to. And there are, there are a number of other commands that I could list off that I haven't done. I've failed to do. The law exposes our sinfulness because it, it, it shows us all the ways that we've failed, but it does not offer us a solution to our sinfulness, right? Uh, the, number three, the law condemns, but it does not offer a remedy for our condemnation. So the law says, yeah, this is what, if you're going to be right with God, you must be holy in every way. The way you think, the way you act, the way you live, your motives and everything. But we know that doesn't describe us. So the law condemns us. And the law actually, and this is what, I'll get to this in a minute, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But this is one of the beautiful things about the law is in its condemnation, it drives us to Jesus, right? Paul says this in Galatians, the old King James, the law is a schoolmaster which drives us to Christ. So the law, it condemns, but it offers no, no remedy for our condemnation. And then finally, the law alone incites rebellion. We think about God's holiness. We say, well, what is our response? Well, the law condemns us. We say, woe is me. I am undone. But what hope does the law give? The only hope the law gives is you got to do more. You got to try harder. You got to get better, which actually leads to despair. The law alone incites rebellion. The Apostle Paul, when reflecting on his relationship to the law, says this in Romans 7. Well, then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. In other words, what the law, what the law tells us to do in isolation, the law apart from gospel, it actually incites greater rebellion. It's like when I was sitting down with my son the other day, or we were finishing up dinner, um, and I said to him, I said, hey, Luke, uh, go tell your, uh, I kind of pulled him aside. Janine was in the, in, the, a little, in the kitchen. We were in the dining area. I said, go tell your mom that this was a delicious dinner. And he, and he looked at me and he kind of got frustrated. And he said, Dad, I was going to until you said that, and now I can't. Like, well, what do you mean you can't? Why? I can't do it now that you told me to. The law actually incites rebellion. And uh, let me give you an ex example. Uh, let me show you a couple of pictures. These are real life. Uh, I think, uh, Jesse, can you put these pictures up? So look on the left. It says no target shooting. What, what do people do when they see that? They get out their firearms, right? Here's something that says soliciting and posting of bills is prohibited. So, so there's every bill. There's Bill Clinton, Bill Cosby, Bill... Uh, What's the real rich guy, uh, Bill Gates? And so when you see Romans 5, the law came in so that transgression would increase. What the law does is it actually, the law apart from gospel incites rebellion. Paul says, I wouldn't even have known what it means to covet. But the law tells me not to covet, and now I find myself coveting everything, right? So the law stirs this up. The law is good. It's not, the law is not the problem. The problem is our flesh. It's our sin. So the law just incites rebellion among the sinful and unglorified. So now I'm not saying to you, am I saying we, 
we should never tell anybody what to do. You know, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that as parents, we should never tell our kids what to do. Of course not. I'm not saying as pastors, we should never tell, you know, whatever. We, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is the law without gospel actually causes a world of problems. But as I mentioned, God has spoken two words, law and gospel. And the gospel is the announcement of what has been done. The law says, do more. The gospel says, it is finished, right? The gospel announces that Jesus satisfied the law in its entirety. So the gospel is good news. It's not good, do, good news if we do certain things, we will be accepted by God, right? That would be bad news because we realize we're not going to be able to do enough. The gospel is good news that the gospel declares what God has done in Christ for the dead, broken, crushed, rebellious, disobedient, beaten down, and exhausted. The gospel is good news for those who have failed, um, that because of what Jesus has done, we can be loved, accepted, received, and forgiven by faith alone. The gospel is the news that addresses our plight, our brokenness, our hopelessness, our sinfulness. It is news about a person who became flesh and took upon himself our sin and our guilt and our rebellion. One who actually obeyed God perfectly, all of his commands, and obeyed God all the way to the cross, we're told, where he subjected himself to torture and even laid down his life. So everything that tells us what to do is law. Everything that points to what has been done is gospel. Now, how do we actually confuse the two? Well, let me, let me, give, you, uh, let me give you three ways real quickly here, and then I'll make some application. First of all, we reduce the law when we soften it, believing that we keep it. I, I call that we cheapen the law. And that is uh, what happens is we, we say, well, what God really demands is not perfection, but improvement. So if I, if I do better, you know, I work harder, I do better, I improve, I, whatever, then we believe that that's enough for God. And that's cheapening the law. That's, that's actually abusing the law because the, the law actually requires perfection. Jesus, this is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, is, well, God, you think you've done enough, you really haven't. You think you've been good enough, you haven't. You think you, you're righteous, you're not. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you know, unless you're holy, like God is holy, you haven't done enough. You know, oh, good for you. You haven't, uh, you know, you haven't committed adultery, but you've lusted. You know, I mean, this is the way Jesus is explaining. You haven't even come close. So what Je the whole point of the Sermon on the Bar is Jesus takes the standard and he ratchets it so high that no one can ever keep it. Well, it was already that high, but he just reiterates how high it was so that we actually then would be driven to Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is not a, a message on how to live better. It's a wall that we crash into and burn that leads us to Jesus. So, so one way we, is that we, we, we confuse the two is we reduce the law. I was talking to a man not long ago, and this is a man who um, was a very proud man, but he ended up leaving our church, and he said just too much emphasis on grace and gospel. And I said, well, I mean, it grieves me to hear that you're leaving the church. I don't, I don't want you to leave the church. I'm sorry to hear that. And, and we talked through, and he said, I just want, he said, I, he said, I want to know that when I die, 
God will look at me and say, well done, I'm pleased with you. And I said to him, on what basis do you think that God will say that? And he said, on the basis that I've improved, I've tried my best in every situation and so on. I said to him, that's never going to be the reason that you stand approved by God because you've, you know, you've done better this year than last or because you've tried to do your best. The law is unflinching. The law is unrelenting. Unless you can say before God, I'm perfect in every way, you have no hope of being accepted by God on your own merit. We, but we reduce, we reduce the law when we believe we, um, we soften it. A second way is we misuse the law when we believe that by keeping it, we are approved by God. This is legalism. So the first one is called the cheapening of the law. The second one is legalism. And this is by keeping all the rules, you know, that's how I'm going to be accepted by God. Legalism. And again, I'm, you know, I apologize. I'm cramming a lot here in this one uh, discussion. The finally, we abuse the law when we dismiss it because we're now under grace. This is licentiousness. So you have the cheapening of the law, legalism, and licentiousness. Um, Romans 6, 1, Paul addresses this. He says, after, you know, just going on and on about the grace of God, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers in actually 6, 2, which I don't have on the screen for you, but this Greek phrase, megenoita, uh, which means may it never be. May it never be. No, we don't, just because we've been given everything in Christ and he's been lavished or loved. No, we don't, the grace doesn't lead us to sin or licentiousness. Um, grace does not give us license to sin. To the contrary, grace enables us to obey and to see God's commands as good. When God instructs us how to live, it's not because he wants to stifle us or restrict us or keep us from enjoying things. He does so that we can thrive. His commands are for his glory and our good. His ways are always best. His blueprint is better than our ideas, whether it's marriage, relationships, sex, health, work, vocation, pleasure, whatever it is. The way that the commands of God are for our good, and, and it's by his spirit within us, the only way that we're actually able to obey. And even then it says we constantly cry out to God for strength and help and for deliverance. And so you know, how, how does this work over the long haul? Well, I think we can, this is not the best example in the world, but I think it does help a little bit. If you're a follower of Major League Baseball, you know there's 162 games in a season, so there's a long season. Well, there's no way, I think the best record that anyone's ever had, Dale will probably know, it's maybe 115 wins and whatever that is, 67 losses, something along those lines. There's no way that anyone could ever set out and say, I'm gonna, we're going to have a perfect season. It's never happened. It'll never happen. But you, can, but, but you can't win a game, right? You can't win a game, go game by game. There's no, one, no one can be perfect. We're broken, fleshly creatured, and unglorified bodies. But any given moment as we cry out to the Spirit and depend only on the Spirit, we can't have victory because of the power of the Spirit within us. So... Um, the law condemns, the law uh, shows us what to do, but it doesn't give us the power. Gospel then, the good news about what God has done, actually empowers us and enables us to do what the gospel tells us to do. It's kind of like, I've heard this analogy, uh, the, gospel, the, the law is the train tracks, but the only thing that's going to move the train is the engine. The gospel is the engine. 
You need to know where to go. But if you put a train on the tracks without an engine, it's not going to go anywhere, is it? It may know. It may have a clearly laid out a path, but it can't go. Uh, Michael Horton, a New Testament scholar, says this about the law. He says, now written on our heart and not merely on our conscience, the law is cherished by believers. They long to keep it, not as a way of attaining life, but as a way of living the life that they have been given by grace alone. The law directs our steps in the way of faith-filled gratitude. Okay, so what in the world does this mean for us? Let me start by saying what it means for us, and then what does it mean for us as parents and our families and then as a church. So for us, what it means is we must, and I know this is a cliche, but it's so important, we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And this, is, this means we must remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, how much we have been loved by God in Christ, and what it is that actually uh, our identity rests in. So, because what happens is, you know, Paul, tell the, uh, Paul tells us the law is written on our hearts. Well, this is good in the sense that now we know uh, right and wrong and so on. It means that every human being has sufficient knowledge of what's right and wrong so that their consciences can accuse them, right? But it also means that we, by nature, as those who are law-inscribed, we demand justice. And the default setting of the human heart is to judge, condemn, and evaluate. And where does this start? Starts in our own lives, right? We judge ourselves. We condemn ourselves. We're constantly reminding ourselves, seeing ourselves, how far short we have actually fallen. This is why we have to always come back to our security, our identity, our position. All of that is tied into Christ's obedience, not ours. We have to remind ourselves over and over and over because we're going to realize every single day at the end of our day, we failed in some way, we haven't done enough, um, and we need, we need to re- be rescued. We need something else. We need good news. The law is actually intuitive. It makes sense. Who's ever balked at the idea that you should love as you've been loved? Who's ever balked at the idea that you do unto others as they do unto you? That's law. That makes sense to us. But the gospel does not make sense. The gospel is called foolishness. The gospel is called a stench because it tells us of a love that is undeserved, a price paid for the broken, the destitute, the undeserving. And we forget these things. Law comes naturally to us. Judgment comes naturally to us. Being loved when we don't deserve it is unnatural, and we forget it right away. We all have had those areas where the gospel has made hardly any inroads in our lives. Hence, our fears, our anxieties, our self-condemnation, our bitterness, our insistence on being right, our obsession with what others think, all of those are indications of areas where the gospel really hasn't made headway. The fact that we insist on being right is largely because we, we can't afford to be wrong in our own estimation because so much is riding on us being right. So for us, I think we, we, we preach the gospel to ourselves daily, regularly. We have to be constantly reminded that for those who are in Christ, we are loved independent of what we do. 
because we have, uh, we have been forever clothed with the righteousness of Christ by faith. Here's what that means, and this is, this is going to sound scandalous, but I promise you it's true. It's a theological truth that comes right from Scripture. Because we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ by faith, God loves us in the same way he loves Jesus. Because when God looks at us, he sees Jesus for those who have put their faith in Christ because we've been clothed with that righteousness. So before you step out of bed in the morning, God is already pleased with you in Christ. You don't have to do anything to to earn your way, to make God happy with you. He already loves you. So that's for us. What about for our kids? Well, I think, first of all, we have to reorient our goals. And that is, we have to change what we desire most from compliance to faith. So what's the goal of a parent? Is to lead our kids to faith in Jesus. Not necessarily just to get our kids to behave a certain way. Because, you know, our kids can, our kids can be the best behaved and win all the awards in 7th, 8th, 5th grade, all the way up through high school and go to the best school and graduate with honors and get a great job and stay off drugs and stay out of jail and get married and still be apart from God and go to hell. Where the goal is not behavior change. The goal is not compliance. The goal is faith, right? Um, it means that we eliminate, another thing for our kids, we eliminate conditionality in our parenting. So my kids need to know, your kids need to know, on your very best days and on your very worst days, I love you the same. I don't, I don't love you less when you have a bad day. I don't, I don't love you more when you have a great day. You know, I've, I've told my kids a hundred times, a thousand times if I've told them, when they've gotten in trouble and I've had to lovingly discipline, I've said to them, I want you to know this doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything with how I love you. I still love you the same. It doesn't change anything. They've lied to me. They've disobeyed. They've snuck around. They've, did things, you know, they've done things that I've asked them not to do. I say, look, this is why I'm doing this because I love you. Here, here's why, th- this is why I'm disciplining you. But I want you to know it doesn't change anything. And in, in we have to eliminate the conditionality. And even though we would never, ever say as parents that I'm going to love you more if you do this, we do show it sometimes. We show it in the way that we award, in the way that we, in the things that we recognize. I told you, Janine uh, challenged me, corrected me in a very loving and, and essential way about a year, year and a half ago. And she said, why is it that, when the kids are late to school, you don't really care. But when they're late for basketball practice, you're really bothered by that. So, you know, that's, that's a problem. You hear my heart, isn't it? Because what I'm showing my kids, or my boys is, you know what? I want you to be in school. Of course, I want you to get, I've never, we, by God's grace, we've never really had to wrestle with our kids on their grades. But, I, of course, I want you to get good grades. But I really, really want you to be at basketball practice. That's important to me. And so sometimes by the way that we accentuate certain things, what we, do, we show what really makes us happy. And we show if you do these things, I'm going to, you know, I'm not, I don't say this, but I'm going to love you more. And here, let me, let me give you a couple distinctions between a law-heavy home and a gospel-centered home. In a law-heavy home, you always get what you deserve. In a gospel-centered home, you get what you don't deserve. In a law-heavy uh, home, if you've been, if you've really acted out, you've you've been terrible, um, you you've mistreated me as a parent, then I'm going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to mistreat you. 
You've neglected me. You've ignored me. I'm going to ignore you. That's a law-heavy home. In a gospel-centered home, you've disobeyed me. You're giving me the cold shoulder. You're doing, but I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to show you my love. You know, I got, I got, I've got two teenagers. At one point, I had three teenagers, and you know, sometimes with teenagers, they'll give you the cold shoulder. You know, sometimes they'll they they'll show you in different ways. It's different from boys and girls, but they'll show you in different ways. I'm actually really, really mad at you, and I don't like you right now. Well, in a law-heavy home, what that person is going to get is, okay, I, two can play at this game. I'm going to do the same thing you're doing. In a gospel-centered home, you get what you don't deserve. You get good things you don't deserve. In a law-heavy home, love is earned. Love is earned. In a gospel-centered home, love is given unconditionally apart from performance. In a law-heavy home, conversations are almost always about behavior. In a gospel-centered home, conversations are at the heart level, right? So in a, in a law-heavy home, a discussion on modesty will go like this. No, you need to, it's got to be, it's got to be two inches above your knee, and it's got to be whatever, you know, on the shoulder, blah, 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 it's got to be. But in a gospel-centered home, you still care about what your kids wear, but let's talk about why it's so important for you to be noticed. Let's talk about, and I had a situation with one of my kids who was, you know, just a class clown and getting in trouble for saying funny things and get other other kids laugh. Now, and, and I didn't handle it perfectly, but I, what I wanted him to know was rather than just saying, okay, you know, which I wouldn't work anyway. Only say serious stuff in school. Don't ever speak unless you're spoken to. I said, hey, I know that's not going to work. But I said, what? help me understand why it's so important to you that everybody in class thinks you're funny. So you, in a, in a law-heavy home, it's the conversations are almost always about behavior. But in a gospel-centered home, they're about the heart. In a law-heavy home, there's a culture of disappointment. I'm so disappointed in you right now. I'm so disappointed that you did this. I'm so disappointed in whatever. In a, a gospel-centered home, there's a culture of acceptance. That doesn't mean that, you know, of course, it doesn't mean your kids do something wrong. They disobey you. You just say, okay, well, i got to accept it. I'm not saying that. But they know that they're accepted by you independent of their performance. Um, in a law-heavy home, extra-biblical rules abound. I served as a elder with a man that, that I love, and uh, uh, he was telling me. He said, "In, in my, he was at the church I was at. He said, I don't let my he had three daughters. I don't let my daughters wear jeans to church." I said, "Okay, I mean, help me understand that. I mean, this is what brothers do. What brothers in Christ do. They push back. They said, help me understand that. Like, what? Why is that?" I said, "Well, my my grandparents had this rule. My parents had this rule. We just don't do jeans at church." I said, "Well." And we, we, we try to discuss what, what's the point in that. If you have a home where there are a bunch of extra biblical rules, rules that don't come from Scripture, rules that are just sort of, they're not really anchored in anything, that's going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead to rebellion. It's gonna, and I'm not saying, if you, look, if you've got a certain rule that you have in your home that's been handed down from generation to generation, I mean, if you can, you can, you can have that, but you don't try to anchor it or tie it to Scripture's don't try to make it a spiritual thing. You know, you just say, this is the way, this is the way I want to do it, I guess. Um, finally, in a law-heavy home, parents never ex ex uh, accept blame. Parents never accept blame. It's always the kid's fault. 
in a gospel-centered home, parents regularly repent, even to their kids. I'm not going to tell you the number of times that I've had to go to my kids and say, one of my kids and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was provoking you. I'm sorry. That was impatient. I'm sorry. That was rude. I'm sorry. That was selfish. I've had to say that so many times. And we were, when my boys were little, you know, speaking of basketball, we would play basketball. Just, I had, there was a guy at church uh, who was a concrete, uh, he owned his own concrete business. So he was very gracious, came out and poured this huge concrete pad in our side yard. It was a, it wasn't a half court by any stretch, but it was a big basketball court. We'd go out and play every day. But every time we would, we would come inside, the boys were always crying. And Janine would say, why is it every time they, you guys come in, they're always crying? I would provoke, and I would trash talk, and I would, I would swat their shots, you know, when they were little. I mean, it wasn't, you know, that bad, but, I mean, I, I was provoking, and I had to realize, and I had to go to my boys and say, look, I'm sorry. Like, there's no reason you should be so, I should be making you so angry. But in, in a law-heavy home, parents never accept blame. In a gospel-centered home, parents repent, and they say, I'm sorry, I, two, what, three or four days ago, something happened with one of my daughters, and my initial response was wrong, and Janine pointed out that it was wrong, my daughter pointed out that it was wrong, and initially I was like, I really wanted to explain myself and kind of justify why I took that approach, but then I was like, this is dumb. Like, no, that was, that was I'm sorry, that was, that was selfish of me. Um, all right, well, we don't really have t- too much to tell. Let me just say a couple things for the church. So, again, this is the importance of distinguishing between law and gospel for us, for our families, our kids, for our church. Uh, very quickly, for our church, we preach the law and gospel, but law first, then gospel. Never the other way around. In other words, we, we never preach, um, you've been saved by the gospel now you have to stay saved, earn it, stay secure by your works. We, it's, it's law. We're, 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 we're condemned. We're sinful. We're broken. Here's all the different ways that we have failed. That's law and then gospel. But God, but God, over and over, but God, who is rich in mercy. So we preach law and gospel, but law first, then gospel. Uh, secondly, we don't preach the gospel as something we do, nor the, the law as something that saves. We preach the gospel as something we believe. We believe. John 6, tell us, Jesus, what do you, Moses had all these things for us to do. What do you want us to do? What work do you give us? Here's the work I give you. Believe. Believe on the one who was sent. We preach the gospel not as something we do, but as something we believe. We recognize the inability of commands alone to change the heart. We know that just by telling somebody what to do, me telling somebody to love someone else is not going to work. The only way we're going to love someone is through the experience of love. Me telling someone you got to forgive somebody for whatever, it doesn't work. The only way someone is able to forgive is through the experience of forgiveness by God in Christ. Final thing uh, as it relates to for the church, we... Debunk the myth of balance. Someone said, yeah, this is, not, this is not theoretical. This has actually been said to me many times. 
yeah, but we got to keep law and gospel in balance, right? We got to hear, we got to hear as much about what we're supposed to do as about what God has done. I say balance is bunk, okay? Balance is bunk. We want to hear it's got to be about what God has done for us in Christ that leads to, motivates, inspires, enables us to do what he's called us to do. There's not going to be any 50-50 split here. The, Bible's, the Bible is the story of a one-sided rescue. It's not a story of, okay, God does 50%, now here's the 50% for you to do. No, balance is bunk. Now, we're going to talk about the things we're supposed to do. We work through the Scriptures verse by verse when it's there. Yeah, that's a command. I'm not going to skip over the imperatives. But they're always rooted in, anchored in, and flow out of the gospel, what God has done. The imperatives must flow out of the indicatives of what God has done for us in Christ.